Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. My name is Matt, and I'm the lead pastor at Vintage Church. We're so grateful that you would take time to lean into a teaching from one of our weekend worship gatherings. Each week, one of our pastors opens the Word of God with a relevant message in the hopes that you are inspired to live and love like Jesus. We invite you now to open your heart and mind and lean into the Word of God. Today, we are in part two of a series that we started last week called The Letter, where for several weeks now, we are going to just dive in. And not necessarily verse by verse, but really kind of thought by thought and issue by issue, walk through this letter that Paul penned to a church that he did not plant. It is a church that he longed to visit. It is one that he probably knew he would never get to. And so when he puts pen to paper, he, un- he just unpacks it all. And he dives into some things that, that we have to talk about. And I said on, from the onset last week that there are going to be moments as we walk through this series that are going to be doctrinally, theologically challenging, and I would even say at times a culturally offensive, and today is one of those days. Good morning. <laughs> because last week we, we kind of dove in, and we see that Paul opens this letter, and he makes it clear his longing to see them, and, and he moves into chapter 1, verse 17, with this powerful statement that has been kind of the turning point in so many moments in history of the church, when he says, the righteous shall live by faith. That he's saying, look, guys, I have, I've found the pathway to right standing with God. It is not through religious ritual. It is not through following tradition. It is not through trying to be the best person you can be because every single one of those things falls short. Y'all with me say amen. I'm going to need y'all to talk to me today most times because there might be some things you want to say that email me at jasmine at Ah. There are some things that he says that are difficult, but one of the things he says is this righteousness is revealed in the gospel, that the right, the way to be made right with God, the way to be restored to right standing with God is revealed in the gospel. Well, you, you don't need to be made right unless something has gone wrong. That it reveals the righteousness of God, but it also reveals the wrath of God. And, and from the latter part of chapter one all the way through toward the ending of chapter three, Paul's got to unpack the bad news. Because if gospel, the gospel is going to be good news, it must mean there's bad news. And the bad news is intended to make the good news even gooder. And that's what it should do. That over the next few verses that we unpack, they're heavy and they're hard. But when you see them in light of the power of what Jesus has done and having faith in the death resurrection, the life of Jesus, who was not just a man. He was just not just a carpenter from Nazareth. He was fully human, but fully God, the one and only son of God, perfect in the way that he lived so that he could sacrifice himself so the guilty could be made innocent. That's where the church should get a little bit excited. But he says the reason why this had to happen is because humanity made a bad trade. There was an exchange, and in the exchange, God could not ignore it, and his wrath is going to be unleashed because of the exchange that humanity made. Go back into chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That Paul says, from the onset of creation, God has revealed himself to humanity. 
that he can be seen in creation. That when you look at the art of creation, it should draw you to the artist that created it. And that in the hearts of man, there is something longing for the one who formed us and made us. But what he says is, despite all of that evidence, we have made the conscious decision to push back. To not recognize God and his authority. To trade what he desires over the desires of our flesh. To not let him be God, but to make our own gods. And because of that exchange, church, there are repercussions. There are repercussions of this exchange. That there is a fallout from the fall. So verse 24, therefore, and remember whenever we see therefore in the word, we didn't know what it's there for. Therefore, because of that exchange, because humanity exchanged the truth of God for a lie, because therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I love how Paul amens himself. I have to do that from time to time too. So they made this exchange, the truth of God for a lie. Moving to verse 26. So for this reason, because they made this exchange, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, this is a section of verses that a lot of preachers in our culture will not properly or even at all begin to approach. But I made a commitment to God that if I was going to stand on this platform, I would preach everything in his word with courage and boldness. And I believe that these verses mean exactly what they mean. And although there have been attempts at times, especially in recent history, to parse out these verses and make these words to mean something other than they were intended, I believe that there is a sexual ethic woven in all of scripture that is quite clear and undeniable. That there has been times to say even these words for men and women are not really men and women. That one place it says men and the other it says boys. And the reason why Paul is condemning it is because of that. But the words used here in the original languages for men and women are most often translated in scripture as male and female. They refer to literally the biological man and the biological woman. And that when Paul says they exchanged natural relations, it is not meaning abandoning their natural sexual orientation for one contrary to that individual orientation. It literally is talking about the law of nature seen in creation when God created man and woman in the garden and in that design demonstrated his desire for both marriage and sexual relationship.
that when it says for one another, this is not a forced sexual encounter. This is one of mutual desire that's revealed in Scripture. And church, and I, I'm going to put it on the screen because I feel like you need to just see it and not just hear me say it. Our sexual ethic must be shaped by Scripture, not our emotions or our culture. And I think, and I know some people say, Matt, well, there's things in the Bible that, that, that aren't clear, or there's, the Bible says maybe points to one thing here and one thing there, and there's like a different, what about cultural relevance? And I think there are some things that we have to, we have to do that deep dive and realize, okay, what was intended for that culture alone, and, and how do we parse that out? I do not believe that this is one of them. I believe from Genesis to Revelation that God's sexual ethic is very clear and it is alluded to not just here but multiple times over scripture. And that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 18 and 19 flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit within you who you have whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body and so how we go about developing a position and shaping a sexual ethic as the church is really really important to god And I cannot find a single place in scripture where God points to that sexual ethic being something other than between a man and a woman in one covenant relationship in marriage intended for procreation and pleasure and it is confined to that covenant alone. And I don't know why Paul goes here first as he's unpacking the repercussions of the exchange. Maybe it's because that's one of the first things that got distorted immediately in the fall of humanity. Do you realize it was in the garden that this exchange exchange first happened? That Adam and Eve exchanged God's truth for Satan's lie. And they both let it happen. God put Adam in a garden with a naked woman and he should have done more to protect that. But the first thing that they, until that moment, the Bible says they were naked and felt no shame. And in that moment, everything got distorted. And there are so many people that say, well, Jesus doesn't really speak on this issue, and I vehemently disagree. That anywhere Jesus has the opportunity to speak into the ethic of of marriage or sex, he even elevates it above the religious norm of his time. When they ask Jesus in Matthew 19, what about divorce? And Jesus says, divorce exists because sin exists. That is not what God originally intended. And he points back to creation and he uses the same words that are used here in Romans when he says God made them male and female and put them in covenant relationship together. And we also need to be reminded though, before we start thinking, yeah, you tell them that, to understand that Homosexuality is not the way or the only way to step outside of God's sexual standard. And before you think, yeah, that's what they're doing, understand that there's not a single person sitting in this room that hasn't at some time in their lives violated God's sexual standard. Because Jesus said, I tell you what, you can violate God's sexual standard 
and never put your hands on another person. Do you remember? He said, if you look at another woman lustfully, you are committing adultery in your own heart. So before you rise up and say, yeah, you tell them, before you start elevating their sin in hopes that it might somehow get you to feel better about your own, let's check ourselves just a little bit, church. That, yes, this is a really important issue, and it is an issue that enough pastors maybe are afraid to use their voice in, and far too often we've used our voice in really unhealthy ways. I do believe that all sin has the same eternal penalty, but not all sin has the same earthly consequence. That even what Paul's saying is that, that sex is a deeply spiritual, more than physical act. And outside of God's standards for it, its ramifications are deep and they're wide and they're painful. And so we have to lean in and acknowledge this reality. But I also understand there's a time in our culture where we're elevating this sin above other sins, acting as if it is somehow worse. Yes, it has deeper earthly ramifications, but it's, that sin deserves the same wrath that the sin you committed yesterday deserves. Getting quiet in church all of a sudden. And I think there's a reason why we try to elevate some sins over others. And I think it because it makes our own conscience feel better about our own sin. But look at me. This will be a church for all sinners because Jesus died for all sin. And the moment we start picking and choosing which sinners we're going to let in and which ones we're not, that is a dangerous, unhealthy, and sinful practice. And Paul's trying to help us see the seriousness of our sin in the hopes that we can see the beauty of our Savior. And he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And that's the third time we see Paul use that phrase. It says God gave them up. That there came a point when, when in their rejection and resistance to what God was trying to do, and, and, and God trying so hard to pull humanity to himself, but we continuing to fight against and push back, eventually God says, okay, if you don't want to listen to me, if you don't want to submit to my desires, then, then I, will, I love you enough to kind of let you go your own way. And this is a concept that we see woven all throughout Scripture, even in our forward series, where it talks about God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What it means is, Pharaoh... Pharaoh was so resistant to God, God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. If you don't want me, you don't want to love me, you don't want to follow me, you don't want my decrees, I'm not going to force myself on you. And when God pulls back, we are headed for destruction. It says, our Heavenly Father, he gave us over. Let us have our way, even knowing that it wasn't healthy for us. This is something that's not foreign to parents. When I was in second grade, I broke my left arm, and I broke it all the way clean through both bones, two places. So they had to put me to sleep to reset my arm. So they took me back in the hospital, they put me under anesthesia, they reset my arm. 
And when I came to, my dad was carrying me out of the hospital, and I wanted to walk myself. And I told my dad, put me down, put me down, put me down. And of course, my wise nurse of a mother said, Tommy Smith, don't you put him down. But I was as stubborn then as I am now. And I started fighting and kicking and pushing and and hitting at my dad. And finally, my dad had had enough. He put me down. I took two steps and face planted right in the linoleum floor of that hospital. And of course, my mama said, I told you. (laughs) But he didn't put me down because he wanted me to fall. He didn't put me down because he didn't know better. He didn't want to put me down. He wanted to carry me through. But I was kicking and screaming and fighting so hard, there came a point where he had to give me over to what I want and let me step out on my own, even though he knew the consequences would not be good because that's just what a father has to do. That's the whole premise of this God gave them over. I see that same thought woven into the the story of the prodigal son when the younger son says, Dad, I... I'm ready, give me my money. And his father's like, boy, no, you're not. But if that's really what you want, I'm gonna give it to you and I'm gonna let you go. And then he hit rock bottom and he spent it all. And the the father of the prodigal son, he didn't want it to go bad. He didn't want him to go bankrupt. He didn't want to see him end up in the pit with pigs. But that's what happened. And the good news about the father that I have, the father demonstrated in that story of the prodigal son and the one we serve in heaven is he's there to scoop us back up when we need him, to pick us back up in his arms, cover us with his grade, and walk us back towards something good. The father says, I knew you were going to bust. I knew you were going to go bankrupt. I knew you were going to end up with pigs. But as soon as I saw you coming, I said, it's time to party. My dad scooped me back up on that floor And he held me back as soon as I reached out to him. And that's the truth for every sinner, no matter what your sin is. Sometimes God says, okay, if that's the way you want to go, I'm not going to stop you. If you're determined to choose that lifestyle, to choose those things, to live outside the framework that I created that is right and good for you, I'm going to let you go. And when you realize that I was right and you're ready to come back, I will be here waiting for you. He gave them up. He gave them up. And again, before you start thinking that a distortion of the sexual ethic was the or the only thing that resulted from this exchange, move into verse 29. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They even invent ways to do evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And with that, Paul just hit us all. That all sin is significant. That in the eyes of God, he does not elevate one sin of the, uh, over the other so that we can take our, quote unquote, small sins and hide in the shadows. That all of this breaks the heart of God and is the reason for his wrath. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That Paul says, as a result of this exchange, the wrath of God is on the way for those who commit and condone the things that lie outside the framework that God says is right and good. And it's, it's that, it's both of those that weighs heavy on my spirit. That we are responsible not just for the things that we commit, but the things that lie outside of God's standard that we condone. Which is why I have to say the hard things that scripture says. Which is why we as followers of Jesus cannot co-sign and condone things that lie outside of what God's word says is right and good. Are you with me, church? Because we are held accountable for it all. But then as Paul transitions from chapter 1 to chapter 2, there's a really subtle but powerful shift in a singular word that he uses, uses that we can't lose sight of. He says, because all of this, again, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Did you catch it? All throughout the latter part of chapter 1, he's saying they. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They, they, they. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. But So before you stand up and say, you tell them wicked sinners. Understand that they are you and you are they. They is us. That the they he is talking about is all of us. Not just the ones who are committing the sins that you think are really bad, but also the ones that are present in your own life. And if you don't think that when I stand up and preach a message like this, I don't feel the weight of my own sin, then you don't know me at all. If you don't think that the day that I have to preach about sexual sin, that I'm not reminded of the many times I've broken that standard myself, y'all, I was introduced to pornography at age 12. And since the day I lay my eyes on it to this very day, I'm tempted to want it, look after it, pursue it, even to this moment. I'm not unaware of my own brokenness as I stand up here and preach this message. And if you weren't uncomfortable before, maybe you are now, like the preacher... If sinners don't ever get to preach, then nobody ever gets to preach another sermon. I'm not unaware. And so Paul's saying, before you start thinking that you aren't them, that you aren't too under the curse of sin, that you too aren't broken, that you too haven't drifted outside. Maybe you haven't drifted outside of that standard, but there's one that you've allowed yourself to move away from. And your penalty for that is the same as everybody else's. So, so be careful. Be careful what you judge. And I know what you're thinking. Matt, isn't that what you're doing by saying that this thing is sin and that thing is sin? Listen, there is a big difference between authentic and sincere righteous accountability and really vicious and malicious self-righteous judgment. And if we don't have any permission for righteous accountability to point out the standards of God, then we're in a really bad place as a culture. 
There is a fine line and a big difference between righteous accountability and self-righteous judgment. That self-righteous judgment is to stand up and start pointing the finger at everybody else and not acknowledge that the, the fingers that need to be pointed at you. That together we are broken and together we need to pursue Jesus in order to be made whole. And as Paul is writing this, I think he's writing it for the same reason I'm preaching it. His hope is that people will read this and see the significance of their sin so that they can understand the need for their Savior. And if you don't see your sin as significant, you won't see the beauty of the one who saved us and what he took on for our benefit and in our behalf. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's trying to get people to understand that God is calling us all to repentance. And there's something that he says in verse 4 within the context of this call that that you need to hear. Look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's at the very heart of something I said last week. Look at me. Never mistake the kindness of God towards sinners for his indifference to sin. But there's something that the church needs to learn from that lesson. If kindness is the method that God uses to bring us to repentance, why do we keep using meanness in the life of the other people that we encounter to try to bring them into understanding? That we never, look at me, we never have reason or excuse or permission to operate with anything but empathy towards people who are struggling with sin. Because that's the way that we want to be treated and that's the way that God treats us. So stop being mean to people who don't sin in the same way as you. Because it's doing irreversible damage to people in our culture. And it's isolating people and driving people to, real, to hurt themselves. We got to do better, church. In no way can we co-sign on anything that God doesn't condone. But we still have the responsibility to be salt and light and empathetic and merciful with how we treat other people whose sin we don't understand. Come on. And as Paul continues to move into chapter 2, he understands that his audience is nuanced. That reading this letter are people from all different walks of life and different backgrounds. That five years before this letter was penned, the Jewish people were allowed to come back to Rome after being kicked out by their emperor. And now you have, again, this melting pot of people reading this letter, people who grew up in the Jewish tradition and grew up under, under that covenant, people that grew up in that Jewish tradition believed just because they were Jewish, everything was fine. Because they were part of that tradition and that heritage. They were somehow unguilty by association. And there were Gentiles here that thought somehow they were innocent by ignorance. The Jews thought, well, we have the law and we're, we're immune because of our knowledge. And the Gentiles thought, well, we're, we're immune because of our ignorance. And he says, no, nobody's off the hook because everybody is going to be measured by the same standard. And that standard is Jesus. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. 
says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That it will be against Christ. That Christ is our measuring stick and none of us measure up. So all of us are in trouble and all of us are in need of God's intervention. And then he moves into talking to this Jewish audience who had been entrusted with the law, who had the framework of God, the standards of God, and thought just because they knew it, even though they couldn't live it, that somehow they were better than everybody else. It might be like somebody who thinks because they go to church and they know the Bible that somehow they're better than somebody else, even though they don't ever live it. So he says in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you're preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And remember, we're going to do that by Jesus' standard of adultery. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That you're living in such a way that like you're even giving God a, a, a bad name. That, listen, Jewish people, just because you're part of the covenant, just because you've heard it your whole life, just because you've walked through the religious ritual and the tradition, doesn't mean that you're okay and that you're immune and that following all those things are somehow going to put you in right standing with God. Gentiles, God has been showing himself to you from the beginning. He's been, he created you and he's been pulling you toward himself and you've continued to ignore that and don't use ignorance as an excuse for the things that you've rejected. And then what, the way Paul writes is so powerful and beautiful. Did you know that, that, I don't know if they still do, but at one time, Harvard Law School used the book of Romans as a part of their law student curriculum. Because if you watch Paul write, it's like he's anticipating the wrong position his audience might jump. And so just before you go there, let me go ahead and head you off at the past. Like before you think you ain't they, let me just say it's you. Oh, before you think that this is what I'm saying and before you try to twist my words in a way to fit what you want, let me go ahead and get ahead of that narrative. And he's moving into the latter part of chapter two and in part of chapter three, he said, oh, before you start thinking, that somehow all that God did through Abraham, all that God tried to reveal through the law is completely worthless? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that the standards and the law and the framework of what God said is right and good is completely worthless. It just can't make you right and good. But just because law, God's law and God's standards doesn't have the power to make you right and good doesn't make it any less right and good. Y'all with me? So before you throw the baby out with the bathwater and think because I can't, nothing I can do will make me right with Jesus, make me right with God, that's true, means, well, I'll just live it up, bro. I'll just do whatever I want. I'll just abandon all that stuff. Just because God's standard and God's law doesn't make us right and good does not mean we should abandon what is right and good because living in the framework of God is where humanity most thrives. And so he it's kind of unpacking this thought. He says then, he says, verse 29, he says, but a, a, 
A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying, you know what? A Jew is not a Jew just because he does Jewish things. That it's a posture of the heart in submission to God. Y'all with me? Put it in our context. Just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you are right with God. Just because you are baptized doesn't mean you have a surrendered heart to Jesus. And then he moves into verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, very much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, that, that there is good about this, that God gave us these things for purpose and reason, but doing these things is not the pathway back to right standing with God. That just, you can't, you can't follow the law better in hopes that that will make you right with God. Because remember, this is righteousness by faith, not by do better. It is not a do better gospel. It is not of, yeah, you're broken, so come to church as much as you can and hope God will be cool. It is not try to keep the law, but it doesn't mean that we abandon following those things. Coming to church is not going to get you to heaven. Owning a Bible is not going to get you to heaven. Your granddaddy being a great Christian is not going to get you into heaven. But it doesn't mean any of those things aren't good. Believe it or not, being kind to people is not going to get you into heaven. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be kind to people. Come on. It's just that's not the pathway back to God. Drop down to verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written. And these, this next paragraph is Paul trying to sum up everything he's been saying over these last several verses. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. What Paul has been trying to do is say, look, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter how you thought you could be made right with God, there's only one, and we all need it. That every human is broken and hurting and sinful and evil, and they need something to happen. They need God to intervene. That we made an exchange, and that exchange broke everything. Not just our sexual ethic, but everything that we think about. It messed up. Our, it led to really broken thinking and really destructive behavior. And as a result of that, we are been, we've been found guilty. And there's not enough good that you can do or enough religion you can pursue to ever make you right with God. That is where we have stood as humanity up until this point. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, but now. But now. But now, God has done something that only he could do. That you were broken and I was broken. You were sinful and I was sinful. None of us were worthy of standing in the holy, powerful presence of God because we didn't measure up. 
And Jesus decided to dive out of heaven and into earth and say, this is the way it's supposed to be done. I will live the perfect life. I will follow all the law. And no, you can't measure up, but I will stand in front of you. And the Father will have to look through me to see you. And he will not measure you on what you've done, but he will measure you by what I've done, and I've done enough. I've done enough. I've done enough for every sin that will ever be committed. No matter how nasty or difficult or deep its destruction. See, I think Paul's fear is the same fear I had. That there would be people that would read these letters and see their sin is so insignificant that they have no need for Jesus. Or see their sin as too significant that they are beyond Jesus and neither are true. There is not a single person that doesn't need him and there's not a single person that is beyond his reach. Because he says, but now, go into it, but now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all, somebody say all. Whoo! for all who believe because see there's no distinction for all have sinned all of us and fallen short of the glory of God and you were justified by his grace as a gift that word justified literally means just as if I'd never sinned justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a perpetuation of his, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over those former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, the bad news is we are broken. I am broken. You are broken. We are sinful, and we do not deserve anything. But that's the thing about grace and mercy is we don't get what we deserve. We get what he paid for. Come on, somebody. We get what he paid for. And he paid for your sin that is not too insignificant, or so significant that you can't be made right by shedding his blood for the atonement of the things that you and I had done wrong. And this was always his plan. Isaiah 53, 5. Two more scriptures than I've done. I know I'm over, but it's worth it. Come on, let's go. Isaiah 53 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we, we, we are healed. And thousands of years after Isaiah wrote it, Peter would echo it because he saw it with his own eyes. He watched Jesus go to the cross. Yes, he stood at a distance and he thought maybe his own sin would be too much, that his own denial of Jesus would disqualify him, but he would experience mercy and grace when on that beach Jesus would say, I know you sin, but I'm not done with you, Peter. I still have a plan for your life. And through the power of my blood, you have significant days ahead of you. And so Peter said, he himself bore our sins 
in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You have been healed. There's not a sinner beyond his saving. There is not a sin too great to not be covered by his blood. And so I invite you to receive it. To see your sin for the significant thing that it is. But see his sacrifice for the more significant thing that it is. That you are not beyond his reach. And in Christ alone, you can be set free. You can be made right with God. Made whole in him. And live with purpose. So you bow your heads, close your eyes with me. We're going to sing. We're going to worship. I'm not going to invite you to stand. I'm not going to invite you to do anything. But whatever you feel led to do as we worship today, this beautiful song, In Christ Alone, as a reminder that in Him and through Him alone are we made whole and bought out of the brokenness that sin has brought into our lives. And my trust is that you will believe in it. That you won't believe just that Jesus lived. That you will believe in what He did for you not for the person sitting next to you not what he did for your grandmother what he did for you father help us to see you for who you are help us to see ourselves for what we are broken and sinful deserving of your wrath but thank you that you don't give us what we deserve that you give us grace and mercy and forgiveness that you took it upon yourself to make us whole to make us right to forgive us of our sin and walk in the standard and power and abundant life that you have for us. Thank you for Jesus, for it is in him alone we have hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Venice Church Podcast. We hope what you have just heard has inspired you to live and love like Jesus. If you'd like to know more about Venice Church or to get further connected, we invite you to visit us at our website at venicechurch.net. We'd also encourage you to download the Vintage app. There you can find more resources about how to get involved and grow in your faith. You can access the Venice Church app by going to app.venicechurch.net. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your spiritual journey, and we hope to see you soon.